So this morning, if you want to read with me, we're going to be in Mark 11, and we're also going to jump over to Acts as well, but the scripture will also be behind me. So we're going to read, start with Mark 11, verses 15 through 18. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And now we're going to turn to Acts chapter 1, verses 4 through 8. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. This has been the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, this is our last week in the series where we've been talking about our mission and our purpose or vision as a church. We said, first of all, we want to be an awakened people who are then sent by God to awaken others. That's what we want to be. And we said what we want to be as a people is we want to be, we're asking God to make us a sending center of his presence and his wholeness along the Grand Strand and even further than that. And what we've seen, we've seen from Scripture is that that's what God wants for his church. It's not just doxa church. It's not just some uh, phrase that I thought up or we thought up. It's not just something that we say we want to do. That's what God desires for his church, is that we would be an awakened people who are then sent by God to awaken others. And we, what we've seen is that that happens when the Holy Spirit uses the gospel, the Holy Spirit and the gospel, when the Holy Spirit uses the gospel to make Jesus real to you. So that Jesus isn't just somebody that you don't know what you think about him or maybe live back in uh, some time. Maybe he was the son of God. Maybe you kind of believe what scripture says, but he becomes real to you. Not a concept, not an idea, not a historical figure, but Jesus Christ becomes real to you. And when that happens... When that happens in a congregation like ours, from person to person and person to person, and all of a sudden you become awakened to see the beauty that is found in the face of Jesus, and you become, as, you, as it were, as he makes, God makes him real to you, as that begins to happen in a church like this, in a congregation like this, what happens? First of all, sleepy Christians wake up. Are you a sleepy Christian? You don't have to raise your hand, just... Maybe not in your head. Hey, I'm, a, I'm not I'm sleepy because I stayed up late watching football last night. I'm sleepy as I'm dull and dry. God can and wants to wake you up. Nominal Christians get converted. People who carry the name of Christian but yet have never been regenerate, have never experienced the new birth, have never had Jesus become real to them as a person and have been... And, 
experience the power of his spirit working in your life to, to, in your inner being, change you at the very core of who you are, they get converted. They meet Jesus. There's a growing sense when that happens of God's presence, of Jesus' presence in our meetings and in our daily lives. Non-Christians, including those who are hungry and those who are skeptical, then begin to pour into the church. They begin to flow into the church. The poor and the forgotten, the marginalized, are then cared for by believers who all of a sudden realize that they can give their time and energy and treasure and not lose anything because they are experiencing the joy of life in Christ. And believers begin to live sent lives. They begin to view themselves as sent by God into the the circles of people that you find yourself in. You begin to, to view the people around you as people whom God loves, and you feel that you are called by God to carry his love and his gospel to them. That's your neighbors and your friends and your coworkers, your family. And when that happens in a church, and this is super exciting to me, I can't wait to see this happen among some of you guys. Some of us, and more than you would guess, will hear a call to radically alter your life to reach new people with the gospel. There's some of you in this room that God is calling you to radically alter your life to reach new people. That might be radically, I don't know what that looks like. Maybe it's starting a ministry. Maybe it's planning a church. Maybe it's going overseas as a missionary. Now, this isn't something that's special that happens in a church. It's what I call the natural state of Christianity. Just as water seeks to find its own level, right? Jesus is always at work to bring his church to awakening. Do you see that? Do you desire it? That's been the beating passion of my life ever since I was a teenager. It's the original reason that I felt called to help plan a church. But here's what happened for me. This is just my story. Somewhere along the way, we've been doing this almost 10 years now. Somewhere along the way for me, it, it, it turned church turned into other things. I, I thought that if I could build a good church, a healthy church, a big church, that would prove something about me. I thought if I, I tried to, if I could build a church using my own strength, using my charisma, man, I thought it could prove something about me. I thought it could finally prove that I belong, that I'm valid, that I'm a, I have a reason to live. I love Jesus. I did. I love Jesus. But also got mixed in, John talked about this morning in prayer, got mixed in with other motives And I began to try to use church. I didn't even realize I was doing it. I began to try to use church for my own ends, to try to prove, again, that I was worth something. And when you mix something good, like planning a church, preaching, sharing the gospel, with some motive like that to try to prove yourself, it's a terrible mix. And maybe for you it's not church. In fact, for you it's probably not church. It might be something else good that God has given you a desire and ability to make money, to be healthy, to be fit, to be attractive, 
to have the ideal family, to have a great career, education. It could be any number of things. Athletics. We take something that's good and we mix it in with a ba- those bad reasons, trying to prove ourselves. It never works out well for and when, for me, when church didn't work out like I had planned, it crushed me. It crushed me. I didn't know who I was anymore. I didn't know if I had a reason to live anymore. I didn't know if I had value anymore. But you know what I found in that place when I was crushed? You know what I actually found me? When my identity and value were rocked to the very core, you know what happened? Jesus met me there. Jesus met me there, and it took a while, but he met me hiding in the darkness of my own shame, and he told me of his never-ending, unconditional love for me. He said, you can't even fully look at your failures, your own failures, out of fear that you'll be crushed. You're afraid you just don't have value as a person because of your failures, but your identity, doesn't, identity does not rest on what you have done or what you haven't done. Your value doesn't rise and fall because of your performance. I love you. I died for you. I am risen for you. I have given and am giving all of myself for you. The Father looks at you with a smiling face and you have my spirit within me, within you. Your future is secured because I hold it. And you know what that did? It brought me to repentance. I began to see the things that I was trying to clutch for identity and value instead of him. It brought me to repentance and it brought brought renewal into my heart. I felt myself being reawakened. And you know what that did? It brought a new passion for Jesus and his glorious gospel and his church. And that and more is what he has for you. It's what he has for all those who are lost along the Grand Strand. It's what he has for those who are hurting around us. That's what he has for them. That's what we want to see happen for, I want to see happen for you and what we want to see happen for those who are outside of these walls today. Those in your neighborhood and your family and your coworkers, those who are hurting and wondering if they have value and if they have any hope for the future. We want to see that spread to everybody. But the question comes today is how does that happen? How do we get there? What do we do in order to see people all all along the Grand Strand and in this room itself become reawakened and to see Jesus, have Jesus be made made real to them? Well, here's what I want you to know this morning. I don't know many things, but 100%, 100% bank it all everything, which is not a whole lot, everything that I have put into this one fund, everything I have pushed in, I 100% know the answer to that question. How do we get there? It's not a new method of ministry. It's not a new way of doing church. It's not getting a new pastor, though you guys can explore that option. 
It's using the only tool that God gave us to make things happen. You know, he gave us a tool, and he gave us one tool. It's the only tool that'll make things happen. It's something so important and so powerful that Jesus got angry. The the time that we see Jesus get angry, Jesus got angry when he didn't see it being used properly. What we're talking about is prayer. Specifically this morning, what we're talking about is corporate prayer. That's when God's, that's a, a corporate prayer means when, when God's people gather together to pray together. And this is the last leg of our mission and vision. And in a lot of ways, it's the most important one. Because if we get, if we were to get this, we would get everything else. We want to be a house of prayer. I want you to see today a bit about how Jesus thought about prayer. We're going to see it in the corrections he made to the Jews, religious practices regarding prayer, and we're going to see it in what he institutes in the church as he's departing at the beginning. The first thing we're going to see in this first passage that Christian read for us, Mark eleven fifteen through 18, if you have your Bible, you can turn there. The first thing that we're going to see is the primacy of prayer. It says that he came to Jerusalem, Jesus did it, and he entered the temple, and when he did, he got angry and he began to drive out all those who were buying and selling in the temple. What they would do is they would come in into this area that was called the, uh, the court of the Gentiles, and they would set up these tables. And there, there, was, there was a reason they did it. Because when people were coming in from all over the countryside to make their sacrifices in Jerusalem, it would be hard to bring your lamb or your goat or your cow or your chicken or your dove. So what you would do is you would bring money and you would come to the temple and you would buy the sacrifice that you're going to make. They were serving, they were a purpose to those who were coming to worship God. And you had to pay the temple tax, and you had to pay it with a particular coin that was minted in Jerusalem. So you'd bring your money in, and you would exchange it there in the temple for the money that you had to pay your tax. You're you're, you're doing something that God told you to do, and they're helping you to do it. They had good reason to be in the temple court. So why then did Jesus get so bothered and so angry That he comes in and, by the way, single-handedly clears out all the commerce that's going on in this large temple court. Why did Jesus get so angry about what was going on? Well, he tells us why. He was teaching them, he said in verse 17, and saying to them, Is it not written, my house shall be called a house of of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Jesus was bothered about what was going on in the temple court, not because they weren't serving a purpose, but because instead instead of praying, instead of using the temple as a place of prayer, they were using it for something else. And I think the way that we do church here the way that we do church in most churches that I know of does the same thing. We sell a show to people who will come and watch and participate in, and we don't don't pray. 
He said, my house will be called a house of prayer. Did he say, first of all, this is not a bad thing? Did he say it would be a house of singing? By the way, he's quoting Isaiah here when God was talking about his house. Did he say, my house will be a house of singing? Did he say it should be a house of preaching? Did he say it'll be a house of teaching? Did he say it'll be a house of good coffee? He said, my house should be a house of prayer. Why would that be so important? Why did Jesus see prayer as primary in life and worship? Well, he, we know that he saw it as primary because he lived it out in his personal life. He was always pulling aside to pray with the Father, and he saw it as serious enough in worship to turn over the tables and chase those out away in holy anger who are using the space for other purposes. Prayer should be the primary purpose, the primary calling of any local church. Because it's there that we meet with God, it's there that we call out to Him, and it's there that we find Him answer our prayers for the nations. He says, my house shall be a house of prayer for all nations. This is the other reason that He was so angry. Not only were they using the temple court not to pray, but the space that they were using was called the court of the Gentiles. It was the one place in the temple that those who were non-Jews could come in. And so they were taking the place where non-Jews, those who were outside of God's family, if you will, could come in and meet with God, call out to God, have God called out to for them. They could come in and meet God. Instead, they had pushed them out to do their own business. Prayer is primary because it's how it's primary in life and worship is primary because God wants to fellowship with his people, even those who are far away from him. What he pictures is his church, his people being a people of prayer so that when people come in from the outside who do not yet know him for whatever reason, because they're curious, they're skeptical, somebody invited them, they're at the bottom of their, of their end of their rope, they're at the bottom of their life, they don't know what to do, they don't know where to turn, they're like, maybe I'll try this. They come in, they don't find a guy who has great wisdom teaching, though I hope that's going on. They, they don't find a people who are just nice and friendly and get them involved in things where they find their people who are praying, they can find, in other words, the presence of God in the midst of his people. That's what people need to come in and see. Smiling faces, friendly faces, absolutely. Good preaching, sure. Powerful praise and worship, absolutely. But mostly, above everything else, they have got to come in and find that God is in the midst of his people and he is in the midst of his people as we call out to him. That's why we don't experience more. And maybe that's why God doesn't bring more people into the church because what would he be bringing them into? Prayer is primary because we need God to do things for us. We are not made to be self-sufficient. We are made, from the very beginning, we were made to call out to God, to do everything and to be everything for us. Jesus set the pattern for us 
When Jesus showed up, he didn't come in showing us, hey guys, I am self-sufficient, almighty, powerful, billionaire, I can pay for anything, do anything. What, did he, what kind of life did he model for us? He modeled a, a life that was totally reliant upon the Father. He said, I only do what I see the Father doing. And he was constantly, the Son of God, constantly pulling away to pray and ask for God for help, for direction, for power, for wisdom. He showed us that the height of Christian maturity, a height of maturity in relationship with God, is not self-independence, but is full dependence on God. Maturity, Christian maturity, is not self-sufficiency. It's not you being able to live a good life on your own strength. It's by learning more and more, I have to lean totally upon God for everything. For my righteousness, for my salvation, for my life, for my breath, for any energy and strength that I need, for wisdom that I need to follow him, obey him. It all has to come from him. Jesus showed us that the primary thing in the church is prayer, and then he showed us that, the, that we should be a place of prayer. Jesus was angry because prayer wasn't happening, that prayer was being ignored, and he was angry that all the people, the Gentiles from the outside, couldn't access prayer in that place. But you know what he did? He temporarily solved the problem, and then he solved the real source of the problem. He temporarily solved the problem by coming in and chasing away all the money changers that were using that space for things other than prayer. But you know what he really did that really changed things? If you're familiar with the story, when he, or if you're not, when he died on the cross, as, as he died, the curtain that separated the Holy of Holies where God's presence dwelt in the temple split in two from top to bottom God was no longer bound in the inner sanctum of the, of the physical temple, but now he was out among God's people. He tore the veil that separated us from the very presence of God. And as Christians, we now have full access to God. He dwells in us and among us. There's a book called Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire by a guy named Jim Cimbala. If you guys haven't read it, you need to read it. He said these as two quotes. The feature that's supposed to distinguish Christian churches, Christian people, and Christian gatherings is the aroma of prayer. It doesn't matter what your, your tradition or my tradition is. The house is not ours anyway. It is the Father's. The Bible, do, the Bible does say my house will be called a, a house of prayer for all nations. Preaching, music, the reading of the word, these things are fine. I believe and practice all of them, but they must never override prayer as the defining mark of God's dwelling. The honest truth is that I've seen God do more in people's lives during 10 minutes of real prayer than in 10 of my sermons. We talked a few weeks ago about how the church, we are, the dwelling place of God on earth. God's house is supposed to be a house of prayer. Because God's house, God's people 
are to be the dwelling place of his presence on earth. And that means that this should be, it, it, it must be the great occupation of the church. Before preaching, before teaching, before singing, even before evangelism, as important as all of those things are, we must be about the business of calling out to our Father. We are to be a house of prayer. Why? For all people. We're to be a house of prayer because there are so many people. Think about the people in your neighborhood. I'm thinking about my, my neighbors right now. I've been praying for them. Think about Think about coworkers. Think about family members. Think about them and how far away they seem from God. How impervious they seem to the gospel. How hard hearts they seem to have. What can change that? If you find a better way to present the gospel to them, is that going to change it for them? You know what changes it? Prayer. Prayer is what takes a hard heart and makes it soft. Prayer is what we call out to when we need the power in order to see the gospel go forth with strength to change people's lives. We're to be a house of prayer for all people. We have to call out to God. It's so important. Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy 2.1, first of all, first of all, first of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions and thanksgivings be made for all people. This is first. In verse 8 he says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. And do you know what happens when we pray like that? You know what happens when God's people get tired of relying upon our own strength. We get tired of seeing the gospel not going forth with power. We get tired of seeing culture seemingly creep in and creep in and push back and push back the church. You see, the gospel seem to be not as powerful as it used to be and not as fresh in our lives. It doesn't seem to be that his, we don't sense his manifest presence in our, in our gatherings like we would desire to be. You know what happens when God's people get tired of that and they see the promises of God in Scripture and they call out to God based upon his word for him to show up. You know what happens when God's people pray like that? I've seen it happen. You know what happens? Like things like this, 1 Corinthians 14. But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. That's what happens when God's people cry out to God. But what stops this from happening? If prayer is the tool that he gave us, Corporate prayers, the tool that he gave us, what stops it from happening? Well, first of all, you know what stops it? Is when we come to consume rather than to receive. When we come to consume rather than to receive. When I'm coming to consume the product that is being offered called church at Doxa or at any other church along the Grand Strand or anywhere, I come to consume that as sort of a, a product or a service that's being offered and I decide, yeah, I kind of like that or didn't like that. I think I'll stick it through. There's more goods than bads around here. I think I'll give it a shot. When I come to consume, rather than to receive the presence and the word and the power of God. 
What stops it is when we come to hear, but not to pray. When I come to hear, you guys sing to me. I like those songs. I didn't like that song. When I come to hear, some guy talk. Well, he needs to polish it up. He needs to tighten it up. He could have left out that part. When I come to hear, but not to pray. I've been in places where you could sense God's presence at move, at moving in our midst. You know what I was cognizant of when I was in those places? The people, the core people who were there, they were coming, not just to see what's gonna, what are you guys going to say today, but they were coming with a prayer on their hearts and lips. God, a prayer, sometimes born of desperation. God, we've got to see you show up or nothing will happen. A prayer born of hope. God, we know that you are here in our midst. God, would you please do something today? A prayer that's, that's thinking about those who are outside, who are coming in. God, there are those who are far away from you that are going to be here today. Would you show yourself and make yourself real to them today? Prayer is the primary job of the church. It is to be what is happening in this place. Among God's people, we are to be a house of prayer for all nations. But then the second passage, I wanted to see that Jesus, we see the importance that Jesus placed on prayer whenever he pushed out the money changers out of the temple. But then we see what he saw the purpose of prayer to be in Acts 1. He says, and while he was staying with them, that's the disciples, before he is, uh, he's uh, resurrected, before he's being, going to be ascended into heaven. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John, that's John the, baptized, uh, John the Baptist, baptized with water, but you will be baptized, immersed, poured out upon with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons the Father has fixed by his own authority, verse 8. But, but, oh, they, wanted to know, they wanted knowledge. They wanted God tell us when you're going to do this and how you're going to do this. But he says, this is what you need. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Jesus wants us to be a house of prayer, but what is it that we're to pray for? What are we supposed to pray for as a church? We're supposed to pray for our, our families, for each other, for our daily lives. Absolutely. But what was Jesus' great focus when it came to prayer? What instructions did he leave his church to pray for? This is what he told them to pray for. Jesus' great focus of prayer for the church was to ask and to receive the power we need for God's mission. The boldness we need to be his witnesses the steadfastness we need to not grow weary, and the direction we need to take in ministry. Jesus' great focus of prayer, it can be summed up in this, is that he 
wanted us to ask for and to receive the power we need for God's mission. And everything that we might need for our life to honor him and to fulfill his mission is tied up in that. And that was what the disciples were praying for when they were held up in the upper room leading up to Pentecost. You know what happened? The church was born. The church wasn't, though there was preaching, the church wasn't born in a sermon. The church was born in a prayer meeting. And the church was born in a prayer meeting when a people were gathered together in one accord and with one voice lifting up, asking God, we've got to have the promised Holy Spirit, which he promised to us. We've got to have the power for the mission. He had already told them, go into all the world. They already had their mission. They already had all his teachings. And he said, this is what you need. Go and wait for the promised Holy Spirit, for he will give you the power to fulfill the mission. Go and wait. And how do you wait? They waited in prayer. The church was born in a prayer meeting, and prayer was central to the life and mission of the church. Because the church was made to be the new house of prayer for all people. It's where communion with God was experienced. It's where direction from God was received. It's where the strength of God was imparted to stand strong. It's where the power of God for mission was given. The Holy Spirit was poured out at Pentecost. And great power was poured out upon the church. God answered the prayer for the Holy Spirit and for power, and he poured the Holy Spirit out upon the church. But it wasn't a once-for-all event. God didn't just pour out the Spirit on the day of Pentecost, and like we have the Spirit, and like we're just going along, and God kind of does whatever he wants to do. We know it wasn't a once-for-all event because it was... It was made to be repeated because in Acts chapter 4, so Acts chapter 1, they're gathered praying, calling out for God, waiting for the promised Holy Spirit. God pours out his spirit. The word goes forth with power. The gospel goes forth with power. Thousands of people come into the church, starts to disrupt Jerusalem. The disciples are arrested. They're threatened. And then, you know what they do whenever they feel threatened? The same apostles, the same disciples that had been in the upper room on the day of Pentecost, you know what they responded to whenever the, the authorities threatened them to speak and preach no longer in the name of Jesus? You know what they did? This is what they did. They prayed this prayer. Acts 4, 29. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they gathered together was shaken and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Well, they did. They called out again to God. You know what God did? He poured out his spirit again. And that's been repeated over and over throughout history. Jim Cimbala said this again in Acts 4, when the apostles were unjustly arrested, imprisoned, and threatened, they didn't call for a protest. They didn't reach for some political leverage. Instead, they headed to a prayer meeting. Soon the place was vibrating with the power of the Holy Spirit. The apostles had this instinct. When in trouble, pray. When intimidated, 
pray. When challenged, pray. When persecuted, pray. And what do they pray for? Give us boldness to proclaim your word, stretch out your hand for healing, and to do signs and wonders. I hope by this point you're saying, all right, Randy, I see the importance. At least somewhat I see the importance. Here's what I'm asking you. Do you see the power? You see the importance? You see how he called us to be a people of prayer, a house of prayer? Do you see the power? I'm reading a lot of quotes today. I just want to read this. This is from Charles Spurgeon about a prayer meeting. How can we expect a blessing if we were too idle to ask for it? How can we look for a Pentecost if we never met with one accord in one place to wait upon the Lord? Brethren, we shall never see much change for the better in our churches. In general, to the prayer meeting occupies a higher place in the esteem of Christians. We need a work of the Holy Ghost of a supernatural kind, putting power into the preaching of the word, inspiring all believers with heavenly energy and solemnly affecting the hearts of the careless so they may turn to God and live. So, let me ask you this. As a church, what should we devote ourselves to? As a people, what should we devote ourselves to? How can we devote our church to prayer for God to pour out his spirit and power? How can we do it? We got to. Now, some of this would be easier if we had a building. If we had a building, we'd just say, hey, every Tuesday night we're going to meet for prayer meeting. Everybody show up. We're still looking. No door is opened. But here's what I'm saying. We don't need to wait for that to happen. The disciples and the apostles of the early church, they didn't have a building. They owned no real estate. They met in borrowed places and from house to house. They gathered where they could and they called out to God in prayer. What I'm asking you this morning, are you hungry enough to experience God that you will call out to him in prayer? Do you long to see your family members and neighbors and coworkers and friends come to Jesus? Do you desire enough to see his church move forward with power to call out to him to pour his spirit and his power out upon us? What do you need to do to rearrange your life in order to make time and space to call out to God with his people? Would you be willing to devote yourself to our prayer service at 9 a.m. on Sundays? Would you begin a ministry of prayer during the, during the service? Would you start to meet with some people during the middle of the week to call out to God? What I'm asking you is, where will you flee for help? Where will you look for salvation? God has shown over and over again in history his might in using nothing to show himself strong. Only a hungry people who are calling out to him in prayer. May he do it again. You call out to him in prayer this morning. Maybe you're here and you're not sure if you are a Christian, 
You're not sure if you are a believer. You're not sure that Jesus has ever been made real to you. You've ever experienced the new birth. You've ever, ever been awakened in your soul. Call out to him this morning. As Savior and Lord, and he will respond. Believer, as we come forward to the body and blood of Christ freely offered to you and me. I don't want you to hear condemnation. Man, I'm not praying hard enough or coming early enough. I want you to hear I am accepted in the free grace of Christ. But man, don't I desire that for other people who are outside? Don't I want to call out to him to say, God, would you make yourself real? Just as real as I will receive the bread and juice in my hand today, would you make yourself real to my neighbors and coworkers? Would you pour out your spirit upon us that we need, because we need your power to do what you've called us to do. I believe if we do that, he'll answer those prayers. I'm going to pray and communion is going to be offered. There's going to be two stations, one on each side. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're invited to come forward. You'll come from the outside. You'll receive the, the bread and the juice. you return back to your, your seat with it in your hand, and then I will lead us in communion together after we sing this song. Father, we thank you for your goodness and graciousness in Christ. And we thank you that in prayer you invite us into yourself, that you've made a way to make us the dwelling place of God on earth. How we so desire to see our neighbors and our friends. We so desire to see the people all along the Grand Strand see you for who you really are. So God, we pray that you would, first of all, stir our hearts to call out to you. God, we pray that you would hear our cries. In Christ's name, and move in power and strength. Pour out your power and spirit upon us, Lord. We ask the name of Jesus Christ.